You are listening to In Daba Down South, a podcast of conscious conversations towards a sustainable, regenerative, and thriving South Africa. I'm your host, Catherine Langsford. We have our narratives in society about people who are weak. We have our narratives in society about mental illness. And if you think about how somebody might be struggling psychologically, if you have to be strong, so these narratives that say be strong or you just need to get over it, those are ways in which people respond to difficulties that are not helpful. Few people go through life without experiencing trauma. It is a common response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event. Trauma shows up in many ways in our lives and can be experienced individually and on a collective level. As the adage suggests, hurt people tend to hurt people. These cycles of harm prevent conditions for healing, particularly within the large systems of extraction and exploitation that characterize modern life. In this episode, we explore trauma in the many ways it surfaces in our lives and in society. Our guest today is Amina Moikambo. She is a psychologist and serves at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation. Welcome, Amina. Thank you so much for having me. We like to give guests the opportunity to introduce themselves as they wish to. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that now. And can you share how you came to be doing this work? So my name is Amina Mwaikambo, and I'm a mental health and psychosocial support practitioner, so MHPSS, at the CSVR. I'm a registered counseling psychologist. I'm actually currently pursuing my PhD in psychology with a focus on experiences of torture for female ex-combatants in South Africa. I've always wanted to work with survivors of violence and other human rights violations, so when I, I completed my master's degree, I was, well, when I was completing it, I was placed at the CSVR trauma clinic. And that work really resonated with my values and objectives as a psychologist, as a psychotherapist, as a practitioner, and as a researcher. So I kind of wormed my way into staying in the organization. And here I am. What an interesting journey. Let's get right into our discussion. When we think of trauma, we tend to think of significant events that clearly mark someone's life. For example, acts of violence or life-threatening illness or physical injury. But trauma can be more subtle as well. How would you characterize trauma? Trauma can occur as a result of an event or series of events that will cause direct threat or harm to an individual or a group of people. So this includes what you've mentioned as well, um, as well as things like childhood neglect, grief and loss, which has been particularly you know, significant since the outbreak of the pandemic. There has been so much loss. So psychological trauma can be characterized by an event or a lived experience, which creates feelings of fear, dread and helplessness, you know. And I mean, if we look at the South African context, there is a significant cultural, historical and intergenerational trauma, which sometimes can't can't be pinpointed in someone's timeline across the lifespan. This is a collective trauma that impacts previously disadvantaged or oppressed groups of people in various spaces and institutional structures. 
So, you know, you have that trauma that is being passed on that someone can't say was this experience that has traumatized me, but it's something that has threaded across history, you know. So someone might not even be able to identify what the cause of the trauma is, uh, and yet they can carry that trauma with them. Trauma induces strong emotional and psychological responses. How does trauma operate in our lives? And in what ways do we process trauma? Trauma can result in, you know, psychological and physiological difficulties. And these often differ, you know, ranging from person to person. You know, in the event of ongoing violence, for example, which is the area that I can, you know, speak to, a person is, you know, repeatedly being exposed to danger or stresses that put, you know, the psyche under strain and which is what you then, which is likened to experiencing trauma. And trauma affects people in different ways. For example, one event may traumatize one person and not necessarily the next person. Essentially, what a traumatic experience does is that it shatters our assumptions about ourselves and others. It changes our views of ourselves. So it makes us rethink who we are when we're vulnerable. And trauma can disable a person from you know, coping or functioning in everyday life or during a crisis. It also changes our beliefs about the world as an, an orderly and safe place. Um, and often in the case of violence, it changes the belief that a human being has that other people are safe and can actually be trusted. So oftentimes, you know, when something difficult happens, many people have to just pick themselves up and keep going, or they may not even know that they need to process that traumatic experience. And, you know, mental health awareness is not as prevalent as it should be. So sometimes people aren't aware of the extent to which they have been traumatized. Some people don't even have the resources to access, you know, counseling or therapy to process that traumatic event. So if left unprocessed, trauma may result in challenges in functioning or coping after the experience because it does shift you emotionally and psychologically. And when a person doesn't have sufficient resources, you know, or protective factors to combat the psychological impact, the experience can leave the person in a state of disequilibrium. And this is what one experiences as trauma or being traumatized. Do you have examples of ways that people try to process trauma that are not healthy or not helpful? After something has happened, you'll want to cope. So it's not necessarily that they are processing always that an in, in ways that are unhelpful, but you want to cope because you have been destabilized and you are dysregulating. So you're trying to find ways for yourself to be able to regulate. So people will go towards different um, coping mechanisms. Um, sometimes it's very harmful. This One of the reasons why um, substance abuse is such a big problem is because it helps people to cope, helps people to escape, it helps people to forget. You know, So those are some of the ways that people hope that they're processing whatever has happened, which is not a functional way of doing so. I assume substance abuse is a common response and prevalent one, but are there other ways that people try to cope that are less obviously harmful, but also harmful to them in the long run? We have, and this is a, this is a common one, we have our narratives in society about people who are weak. We have our narratives in society about mental illness and if you think about how somebody might be struggling psychologically, if you have to be strong, so these narratives that say be strong or you just need to get over it, 
those are ways in which people respond to difficulties that are not helpful. Because essentially what you're saying is you need to get over this, you need to forget about it, and then just move on. I mean, it sounds sounds great in theory, but you know, on an unconscious level, not so much. Because what has happened to you has happened to you. And you need to be able to go in and make meaning of what has happened. If it's a loss, you need to be able to go and process that loss for what it means. You know, if it's a violation, you need to be able to go into the parts of you that have been violated, even if it's not just your body, even your psyche that has been violated. And you need to be able to go and see what that actually means for you, you know. Um, So unfortunately, you do find people saying that, okay, you know, you just need to get over it or you know, seven steps to <laughs> sometimes that doesn't really help because it allows, it forces you to stay in your thoughts about what has happened and not go into your emotions and not go into the psychology of what has actually happened to you. Most of us are able to gauge when we or someone close to us is having an off day or going through a stressful period, but how do we know when it is more than a tough time that we are experiencing or someone else is experiencing, what are the signs or what are the markers that it's more than just a difficult period? Someone is close to you may notice things like behavioral change, and that can typically communicate to you that something is not okay with them. But I'd like to say this, you know, if someone is having an off day, That is where we start to understand the people around us better. We don't have to wait for a huge crisis moment to start to understand them. And that's when we understand how they are when things are not okay. And I'm saying this, for example, in response to everyday difficulties, such as if someone had an argument with a manager or friend or relative, you know, and this has left them feeling a bit dysregulated or under the weather, so to say. So even in these moments, we learn something about the person who's close to us, how they are and who they are when they're not okay. And that's the first part. So basically knowing this about them is key to knowing when there's actually more. So usually you can identify that it is more than just, you know, a bad day by how long it's taking for them to normalize or to regulate. It is possibly, for example, a significant mental health problem if you see how that internal difficulty that they're having, that dysregulation is now impacting their ability to function in the external world. And by this, I mean that they're struggling to, for example, perform at work, their relationships are a little bit more strained, they're not able to communicate well, um, and their behavior is, it indicates that they've developed normally or typically an unhealthy coping, coping mechanism or behavioral mechanism or they're avoiding the thoughts or emotions that are related to whatever it is that is traumatizing them. So I do think it is important for us to pay more attention to ourselves and to the people around us in everyday life, you know, so that we are able to then see that, okay, this person might be in a crisis and, you know, we can then reflect, we have a point of departure to say that, okay, normally this is what they're like um, when it's, it's relatively small, this must be something bigger. And to see it in ourselves, I can imagine that that would actually be more difficult than than seeing it in someone else. When we are more mindful of our emotions and are more mindful of the emotions of others, it's almost like we learn better, you know? So things that you would see in the next person and you're like, okay, that's a little bit awkward, you know? You sit and you think about it and you, you know, you just see which feelings or behavior, whatever it is, resonates with you. And you can learn things about yourself 
based on how you perceive other people, for example, if they're in difficult situations. Empathy is really important then. What role does empathy play in us being able to respond to others and and to ourselves in situations where we've had a traumatic experience or we're processing trauma of some kind? It's a very big one. We it's it's like that that person in the classroom that we never want to acknowledge, you know, because empathy is about you being able to look at a person in a situation and get as much into their shoes as you possibly can. And you know, when we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, we are less judgmental. So when you see somebody who is struggling with something, um, for example, let's use something like addiction, right? See somebody struggling with an addiction and you're like, okay, but how did you even get there? You're not empathizing with the person because if you're empathizing, then you'd say, I wonder how this person got there. I wonder what has happened in their lives for them to, you know, be addicted to the substance. I wonder what the substance is doing to their body, to their mind, um, their relationships with others. There's a different texture and empathy isn't just something that we just, we have to be able to engage with it and see how it is we feel about other people, um, which will help us understand, okay, this, this is what is happening in this person's life. Empathy is a very big one. If you're saying that you empathize, but you victim blame, for example, uh, not so much. <laughs> you know, you have to be able to say, okay, I wonder what is happening in this person's situation. And, and that is empathy. That is being able to see this person as a whole person in a, in a certain situation, yeah. You touched on this earlier, the issue of intergenerational trauma, collective trauma, and conflict is something that people all over the world struggle with. Conflict within ourselves, interpersonal conflict, and conflict within society, often caused by institutions and systems. A lot of traumatic events are triggered by people's disconnection whether that's due to abuse, harm, neglect, or some kind of addiction, all of, all of the things that you've mentioned. And we become disconnected as a result of that trauma, which furthers the trauma in society. I'm also thinking of, for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. So South Africa has a long history of various forms of trauma, And the TRC was intended as a way of facing the trauma caused by apartheid. But many people now criticize the TRC for not achieving that mandate fully. So in what ways are we seeing collective trauma displayed in contemporary South Africa? And and how is that impacting us now? Trauma, it shatters our assumptions about ourselves and about others. It makes the world feel like a threatening and unsafe place. So when we speak about collective trauma, it can be described as a shared traumatic event or series of events that are experienced by a group of people. And then consequentially, it impacts, you know, for example, the social aspects of the group. Apartheid is a good example because this was an era where Groups of people experienced oppression and violence, but not only on a personal or individual level. It impacted how people experienced the world, as well as how entire groups of people then experienced each other. 
And we see this collective trauma in you know, contemporary South Africa through the trauma that has passed on to other generations, you know, the, the social, psychological, racial experiences and aspects of trauma and of how trauma can be felt by even those who, you know, are what we call born freeze, you know, people who are born um, <laughs> in the rainbow nation, you know, they're experiencing it to a certain degree. Essentially, this shared trauma and its impact still persist. Apartheid has a legacy where identity groups are still significantly disadvantaged and disenfranchised in democratic society. And, you know, one of the important aspects of collective healing, it includes how social groups are able to then mourn what has happened and what has caused the trauma. So, for example, the TRC, like you mentioned, it had its mandates, which was implemented in the manner that it was implemented. And I think what people seem to struggle with is that it may not have brought that healing, you know, if it was not trauma-centered um, and if it didn't, you know, aim to facilitate mourning and grief, for example, then the collective, and by collective, we're not talking about an individual or group of individuals. So that collective healing couldn't actually happen as we've seen, you know, because the idea or the notion of the, the extent of the trauma may not have, have filtered through the entire process. It aimed, you know, more to be able to identify, acknowledge these injustices and bring together and facilitate conversations. Um, but essentially, I mean, if you look at the importance of healing and, and elements like forgiveness, who gets to dictate, you know, what the forgiveness and healing is like? You know, is it the person who's part of the process or is it the process? I think that's one of the, the issues many people have with the TRC. Are there other ways in which people try or are trying to process the, the trauma of apartheid? Are there any formal mechanisms to do that? Or are people left to be doing it by themselves or in individual communities? It's very interesting because South Africa is also very diverse and South Africa has a history, for example, of colonization before apartheid, you know, so there's this cycle, or this um, transition of violence that has happened across history. And the problem with violence is violence begets violence, you know, and essentially what we then see in societies, we see these cycles of violence in different spaces and in different ways. And I think sometimes the violence comes from people trying to survive. So if we're looking at how we are facilitating healing, I think there are different pockets of people, groups, organizations that try to come together and facilitate healing in different ways. But I think also when we're not addressing the structural nature of this violence and the suppression, it makes it very difficult for the healing process to continue because you have people who are you know, groups of people, for example, who are working on, you know, whatever collective healing means to them, but you have these structures and these systems of governance that continue to disadvantage, you know, certain groups. It is a very complex process. It's not something that can be done overnight, but I think the important thing is being able to identify the trauma, that this is a collective trauma and how that filters into systems, how it's been experienced by groups, identity groups, communities, different parts of, you know, South Africa and acknowledging that and then seeing from there, what does that mean? But I think healing will always look different for different people. 
I think that's a critical point. I think we have to respect diversity and we have to respect um, process. And, you know, the, the person who needs the healing should be, you know, the driver in terms of they're the ones who can tell you that this is where we need healing. For example, let's just say if we look at something like stability, creating systems that facilitate stability is part of a process of the healing, but that may differ in different ways. So having to speak about things might not be where people are right now. People might say things like, you know, can we just have a, a certain measure of stability and then we will start to feel like, they, you know, we, we are getting somewhere, you know. So it, it's, it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. It always has to be a situation where you're able to go to spaces and communities, groups, and say what, what has happened, what is going on, where the areas that um, you have struggled as a collective, and then that's where you start to identify. So where are the wounds? What are the areas that need the, the healing? Yeah. And racial relations play such a huge part in this process. I'm interested to know if you see a greater social cohesion in terms of interracial friendships and community groups as a positive or whether those are limited in the amount of collective healing that they can do because we're still facing many of the challenges that people faced under apartheid. Race is a very interesting one because if we look at, you know, at the crux <laughs> of apartheid, it was oppression based on, on race. Um, race on its own as a, as a construct is quite problematic, but for another conversation, you know, um, we can't ignore the power dynamic that comes with race and identity. We can't ignore that. And, you know, that always weaves its way in you know, into different spaces. So if we're looking at interracial spaces and we're not prepared to have the conversation about how race and race as an identity marker can serve as a form of power, if we're not able to have that conversation, then we can't, we, we can't then act like it's, it's just going to be okay, you know, because we have perceptions of each other based on race but not, not on an individual level, on a collective level, because of the way that race has been constructed, because of the way that, for example, if we're looking at Black people who have been previously oppressed by the apartheid um, era, who may still be, and I mean, obviously not all, this is not a generalization, but may still be living in poverty, then we, we start to identify, for example, poverty with Blackness. And I think this is the complexity of, of society is that we don't then just forget. You know, we can't just forget. We have to be able to engage with these constructs in a way where people are able to say that this is what it means to me to be Black. This is what it means to me to be white. And when you're able to then start to hear those conversations, then we can have a more in-depth understanding of the intricacies of race as not just something that is in our skin. You know, it's not just melanin or the absence or the presence of. So it's, it's always very contentious when we think about race and interracial spaces and healing because the power dynamics do shift and we can't ignore them. When you want to ignore them, we're feeding into the problem. Is the most healthful way of addressing this in our relationships, is it to explicitly address it and to 
introduce conversations around this topic or can that be inflammatory and can that be more divisive than we intended to be? It depends on where it is. There's always going to be intersections, you know. Um, it depends on where it is. It depends on how it's said. It depends on who is saying it. So I remember reading in a book, you know, somewhere about the TRC and somebody was basically, you know, critiquing that the media portrayed Black people, for example, a certain way, right? And we know when there's violence, there's always the way that the media profiles or, or, or closes out certain voices. That was done it, during the apartheid era, for example. And then we are calling the same people to come into spaces and engage with the same media in that process of healing. And I remember that this person was critiquing that the very same mechanism that oppressed this person and silenced them, you expect them to believe existentially that this mechanism is now going to give them a voice and give them power. And they were basically having a critical exploration of some of the aspects of you know, the, the TRC period that can be experienced as problematic. So if you look at it, and I know a lot of people will say things like, but you're constantly criticizing the, the TRC. No, sometimes it's critiquing it because you created an intervention and you had an objective and a mandate. And if it didn't fulfill that because we're looking at other outcomes, then you need to be able to vocalize those things. So that's why I'm saying that it, it depends. The conversations about race and power dynamics and intersectionality and positionality in society and how that filters into trauma it's very, very, very sensitive because it can be very harmful. It can be liberating, but it depends. It always depends. Earlier, you suggested another layer to it around colonization and around occupation of, of land from hundreds of years ago. And I think that adds to the, the debate and adds to the tensions. You know, at CSVR, one of the things that we, we have done, you know, and we work with, you know, survivors of war and torture and organized um, violence, one of the things that we have tried to be mindful of is that a lot of people who come into the, the you know, the, the clinic or come to receive counseling are severely traumatized, right? So the objective is to provide counseling support for the psychological difficulties. But a lot of these people, one, because they typically have been displaced or have been oppressed or disadvantaged or disenfranchised, then don't have the social resources that the average person readily has access to. So one of the little things, and, and I'm saying this because I really don't want to sound condescending, but I'm just kind of bringing an example. One of the little things that we, we do is in our reception, our waiting area, when a client comes in, is they're able to find things like tea, coffee, a sandwich, a fruit, um, juice, something like that. And it's not just because we want to have refreshments there, but because sometimes you're sitting and you're talking to people who are severely traumatized, but also haven't eaten. And you have to be mindful that I'm here to provide this service, but how is it going to help if you're hungry? And essentially some of these conversations do go in a certain direction because the conversations are not on the same level. And if we're not going to recognize that a person is whole, they're not just the psychological elements, they are, they are social, they are, they're relational. You know, there's so many, a person is whole. If we're not able to then see that, 
when we're engaging in, in conversations about violence, for example, then we'll always kind of be missing it because there's always context. Definitely. Uh, to return to our discussion around the TRC and the work that it was doing and, and other collective healing processes or, um, or the lack thereof, there's a sense of closure that comes when wrongdoers are held accountable for their actions. But often in South Africa, that doesn't happen and perpetrators seem to avoid justice. And it's difficult to transcend the wounds of the past when the current circumstances aggravate these wounds and re-traumatize us, as you were saying earlier. How do we make sense of this lack of justice as a country? And I'm thinking even since apartheid, the, the apartheid period, we've had many political regimes or many leaders or many situations in our country where justice has not been done or wrongdoers have not been brought to justice. So how do we make sense of this as a country? And, and how do we as a nation heal? Healing is a, a complex and ongoing process, particularly in the context of collective trauma, like we've, we've discussed, you know. So just kind of reflecting also on um, some of my previous comments and just thinking about the the social and institutional systems that continue to disadvantage previously oppressed groups, you know, and, and in a way then facilitate this re-traumatization because essentially the person may be going through the trauma, but the context itself is also wounded, you know, and in this case, you know, we are speaking about South Africa and its history. And, you know, the notion of a wounded South Africa needs to be acknowledged so that the honors of healing doesn't solely rest on a group of people who have been oppressed, you know. Also, when we look at healing and justice, we have to, you know, ask ourselves how justice in itself is defined. And, you know, again, who gets to say that it facilitates healing, particularly, you know, if the justice process is more legalistic and administrative and not so much trauma-centered. And I think this is why... Um, you know, processes like transitional justice are very important because, you know, they look at the broader, you know, understanding of human rights violations. You know, they look at it from a multi, uh, you know, disciplinary, multi, multi-sectoral perspective. And, you know, so transitional justice essentially feeds off different sectors that need to come together in order to ensure that there's redress and ensure that there's healing that takes place. You know, so I think if we are looking at how um, South Africa as a nation can heal, you know, we have to look at the justice systems. We have to look at, you know, aspects of the social sector. We have to look at violence and how violence continues to filter into different sectors. But there's, there isn't just one process. We need to be able to look at it, you know, and look at it across time, not like a snapshot in a moment. I saw that the CSVR does a lot of work in transitional justice. Can you tell us more about that? One of the, the highlights um, of CSVR that I just I've really appreciated is how we have tried to integrate mental health and psychosocial support into transitional justice. So looking at things like peace building, um, 
looking at, you know, like these truth and reconciliation processes and documentation of, you know, human rights violations, but always just trying to make sure that these processes are trauma informed. So I think one of one of the things that I personally appreciate about how CSVR has framed the transitional justice process, it looks at the process, it looks at the people who are going through the process, it looks at what has happened, what has happened across time, and also looks at, for example, different because I mean, we've seen the political conflict um, and the violence across Africa, but just kind of looking at how different countries and different regions have tried to work out um, these processes. On that, uh, South Africa hosts many refugees and migrants who have their own experiences of trauma. And many are victims of xenophobia, and sadly in South Africa, which adds to their trauma. And so the CSVR has done significant work with refugees and migrants, as you were saying. Can you tell us about other work besides transitional justice work that you've done? Um, you were mentioning earlier about the, the trauma services that are offered to refugees and migrants. CSVR has done significant work with victims of um, war and torture, victims and survivors you know, providing direct and indirect interventions that are aimed at um, healing and rehabilitation, you know, and the organization approaches its interventions in different layers, you know, from the individual to the collective, looking at the wounded context as well. Many, many forced migrants have experienced, you know, atrocities in human rights violations that they need to be able to process psychologically. They've been displaced and there's so much trauma that just alone the displacement actually carries, you know. Then, you know, as you mentioned, there is the issue of xenophobia and we have to be mindful of the trauma experiences also of many South Africans as a result of apartheid. And this is a very sensitive topic because of how violence persists in society, you know. And, you know, we, we previously discussed how trauma impacts the person and it impacts the collective. So at CSVR, what we do is we aim to provide mental health and psychosocial support services that are required for survivors of war and torture um, for them and also for them to be integrated into a host country like South Africa in as functional uh, a state or way as possible. Then also being mindful of how South Africans are also experiencing their collective trauma and how they are coming out of, you know, apartheid as well and what it means to have to just kind of hold all of that trauma um, at the same time. And, you know, the interventions are centered around, you know, processing aspects of trauma, um, such as, you know, grief, loss of status, loss of identity, loss of support, you know, the lack of recognition, you know, when you're going into a host country, having to negotiate um, legal documents, having to ne negotiate healthcare, and essentially also just, you know, managing the symptoms of the trauma and depression and anxiety that comes with the, the violations. And, you know, CSVR has done extensive work um, related to these contexts. And, you know, so obviously that's the MHPSS program. But as previously discussed, there is a lot of advocacy work that comes up with the transitional justice work. And then CSVR also does, um, has a research component, which aims to ensure that our work is always evidence-based. So always doing research and exploring you know, the different constructs and the different elements and how violence filters into in particular ways in particular spaces and what that essentially does, you know, for, for the people and for the contexts.
it's a comprehensive response to the communities that you work with. I'd like to circle back to the start of our discussion to look at some practicalities. What are ways in which people go about identifying trauma in themselves or those around them? Earlier, you spoke about noticing unusual behavior. Are there other ways that we can identify trauma? Let me just put out a disclaimer (laughs) that, um, as I previously mentioned, you know, people experience events differently because we are different and we have access to different resources that can serve as protective factors, for example. So let's say something that I may say may not resonate with one person. It may not resonate with everyone. And, you know, it shouldn't serve to invalidate the traumatic experience of others. I think it's very important that when we speak about trauma, you know, we are speaking, you know, and, you know, in a very reflective and a very tentative way, because the way that violence works with, and the way it shames people and, you know, people internalize the things that have happened to them when they hear about somebody else's traumatic experience, it may then start to feed into, okay, so maybe I don't deserve to get the healing. Maybe I don't deserve to get the recognition because it looks different somewhere else. So that's my disclaimer. So back to your question. So how do people practically identify trauma? I mean, there are, you know, the obvious signs like the hyperarousal, which, you know, includes like hypervigilance or being easily frightened, you know, having anger outbursts, sometimes um, having sleeping difficulties. Some people experience flashbacks and nightmares, or they even have emotional or physiological reactions to triggers or reminders of that traumatic experience. Another one is if you find yourself avoiding certain people or places that may remind you of what happened, there are highly likely aspects of that trauma that has remained unprocessed. And, you know, trauma can also show up in everyday life things like difficulty establishing trust with others. So like I mentioned before, that it shatters your assumptions. Um, Difficulties with developing healthy relationships can also be seen in the way you develop unhealthy relationships or, for example, maybe struggling with setting boundaries you know, maybe reflective of, you know, some sort of trauma that hasn't been processed. Um, Some people also isolate themselves as a result. There's that isolation when you feel like you don't have a desire to connect with other people um, and you're very disconnected from people. We have severe difficulty communicating or expressing your feelings because it comes maybe from a fear of rejection. Um, And I think another common one, which, you know, we start to, we start to see in our everyday life is things like this need for perfection. I'm sure a lot of people can start to resonate with that. So where does it come from? You know, why, why is it so important for things to be perfect? And sometimes that may come from a place where maybe you are trying to avoid being rejected. So you try as much as you can to make things perfect. So you don't have to feel or experience, you know, that rejection or possible abandonment or possible Um, feeling like you're being devalued or something like that but essentially just kind of thinking about this broad scope of everything that I said um, trauma does work its way differently in different people and you know just kind of thinking about even what we spoke about earlier that you might not necessarily be able to pinpoint one event or one series of events that traumatized you but for example if you were raised in a home with um 
you know, parents or caregivers that had their own trauma, you know, that does filter into the way that they're able to look after themselves and possibly even look after you, you know. So in those interactions, the trauma meanders its way in and we start to develop certain character character traits of responding to people and responding to things that might be reflective of difficulties that have shifted us or destabilized us. So as you were saying earlier, we really need to be aware of ourselves and aware of others to be able to see these things emerging in our everyday lives. Many people are faced with emotional pain, feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, but they're often unable to access help and support, or they don't have the skills of how to cope with life circumstances. So how do we go about dealing with all this trauma? What tools or resources are available? And what do we need in South Africa to move towards collective healing in terms of practical tools or resources? Mental health and mental illness are still very much stigmatized in South Africa and across Africa, you know, partly because it is associated with weakness. So, you know, those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, you know, they are regarded as a character, not as a symptom, you know. And um, because of that, then, you know, mental illnesses and mental health difficulties are still very much, you know, stigmatized. And I mean, the obvious part is, you know, we have to acknowledge this collective trauma and not expect people to just get over things or expect them to have, you know, healed in a prescribed manner. You know, healing is always going to be a unique process. And, you know, you can't tell people how they will heal. You know, healing has to be, a, you know, you engage with people as an interaction, you know, with what has happened and what it means to that person or that group of people or that collective. It's about meaning making. And, you know, if we look at concepts like forgiveness, for example, and I think I mentioned it before, that who gets to determine, you know, whether they're forgiven by the next person, you know, I can come and ask you for forgiveness and you can say, okay, I can forgive you on a social level, you know, because I guess it's socially acceptable to say that, but does it mean that you've been able to process and make meaning of what has happened, you know? And if there is this expectation of forgiveness as part of a healing process, you know, again, it puts the pressure on the person who has been oppressed to just kind of find something that then makes everything okay. And experiencing violence and oppression doesn't just become okay especially when there is a history of this. You've seen how it filters into social spaces. You've seen how it filters into institutions. So it is important, you know, for that collective healing to be part of a conversation facilitated by the people who, you know, have been traumatized by the people who need the healing. So essentially the oppressor can't tell the oppressed how to forgive and how to feel or how to heal it's an exchange um, of understanding what has happened the gravity of it and then providing platforms and facilities that are trauma-centered that can facilitate the healing and I think if we look at South Africa for example we we need to be able to look at even aspects of culture what has been lost or what was lost in culture because of oppression what was lost in identity because of oppression? And I think from there, then we can start to say that, okay, fine, this is what healing may look like. And the resources and tools or interventions that are then developed 
are community-based, looking at these are the communities that may require the healing. What, what, does it, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? You know, and then you build from there, not a top-down um, process, not a prescriptive process, no. That's really powerful. So instead of suggesting that people attend psychotherapy or counseling sessions en masse, it should rather be centered in, in what they believe would be a, a healing process. And from that will come the healing. And it won't be a once-off event, as we've said. But often the tools or resources that we would naturally want to suggest are, as you say, actually coming from the oppressor. But we do need to kind of move away from what is prescriptive, telling people that this is healing and hear what healing is and hear different ways that people can, can find healing because you can't or you can't dictate where the wound is even. The person has to, or the, the collective or the group or the community has to be able to say that this is our wound. Um, this is where our wound is located. And, you know, that it, it grows from there. Not to say that. And I mean, obviously, I'm a whole believer in psychotherapy. <laughs> um, but you know that there are times and places where you have to then sit and say, what does this person need? Even in our therapeutic processes, just kind of understanding you know, where, where is the trauma? Where is the trauma located? What is the person saying to you about their trauma? And responding to that and, and understanding that, you know, it might not always be in conversations. It might be in, in body mapping. It might be in narratives. It can be in so many different ways and so many different forms. And, you know, as a practitioner, you don't necessarily prescribe that. You sit with the client and you hear them. And you meet them as, you know, as you are part of their journey, you are helping them in their journey um, of healing. But you can't decide, um, you know, um, that this is the healing that this person needs. And I mean, this is very, it's very important, especially when you're experiencing or when you're working with people who have experienced significant violence, because you might know parts of the, their, their narrative, their lived experiences, well, you know that this is a trauma, you know that this is something that they need to be able to process. But if they're not ready to go there, it is not your role to push them in that direction, because then that can also be a form of violation. You have to be able to move at their pace and hear what they're saying and what they're giving you. And you work with that um, in, in the healing process. Yeah. Let's turn to your role as a psychologist. I've noticed that you have a really active social media presence and it's clear that you like to use social media to promote awareness around mental health. So can you tell us more about the impact that this has had on your online community? I am actually not a social media person, but I think how I ended up, um, you know, kind of creating the platforms and social media had more to do with my purpose as a psychologist and a mental health practitioner. And I decided that especially because of, you know, when, when COVID hit, you know, COVID disconnected a lot of us, we all needed to isolate. And I think for me, just kind of sitting and thinking about the impact of the pandemic on people and how, you know, at the forefront was the, 
the physiological and the economic aspects of the pandemic you know so what is it doing to industry what is it doing to people's bodies and just kind of thinking about how mental health in itself threaded throughout the the pandemic and how it was only being discussed and I mean yeah but I think we can say more towards a later stage when we start to see you know people struggling a lot with anxiety struggling with depression where we saw what the loss of life was now doing in terms of our grief patterns and our grief processes, you know, looking at different aspects like, and this is a prominent one, is that when people are, you know, being isolated or having to work from home or stay home, sometimes with very abusive partners, for example, what was that doing? What was happening to the people who no longer had access to alcohol, something or a substance that they are addicted to what is happening when that person is going into withdrawal so you're seeing all of these mental health challenges all just kind of erupting and we're not having conversations about that we're talking about washing our hands and we're talking about you know wearing a mask I mean that is fully important you know for me I sat down and I just thought about all of that and why I then kind of committed myself to um, engaging in social media a little bit more was because I felt that it was very important for us to have conversations normalizing mental health difficulties because now we are all in the same pandemic, all of us, you know, and we're all sitting and reflecting on our mental health and we're seeing, you know, how the change in, in society is affecting us. And some people who I guess are not as much exposed to um, understandings of mental health and mental illness are just kind of winging this life thing. You're just kind of winging it. And you don't know what's happening. You don't have the language of mental health to then say, oh, this is what's actually happening to me right now. Okay, I'm having a panic attack. You know, but so for me, the social media posts have been about normalizing conversations about mental health and mental illness. And, you know, for purposes of psychoeducation and for reflective purposes, you know, for people to be able to then access their thoughts or their emotions and then hopefully find resources around them you know, to provide them with the mental health support that they require. That's a really positive contribution that came during a, a very difficult period, a collectively difficult period, and I'm sure it was highly appreciated and very well received. Thank you for doing that work. Like I'm saying, it's we have to be honest with ourselves that sometimes Sometimes you, you, you step outside of a comfort zone. So part of me actually interacting with social media, I had to think about, okay, I'm engaging with social media much more than I typically would, you know? Um, and I found a sense of balance, you know? And I think one of the things that we have to kind of start to understand more as a society is finding that sense of balance, you know, um, where the individual, the internal might be uncomfortable, but, um, there, there is an external, you know, reward of being able to, to do and participate in certain things. And I think it is very important to, just to kind of think about how when we are isolated um, and we, our connection is social media, what are we accessing, you know? Um, so for me, I was looking at, okay, I typically wouldn't spend this much time on social media, but I know what I'm doing there. So I'm okay with it. And we're finding during the pandemic, a lot of people spending much more time on social media and essentially what that then does in the long run is it teaches you that when something happens, you go outwards. So you go and you find because you want to connect. And sometimes that connection can be healthy and sometimes that connection can be unhealthy. 
But essentially, it is about being able to have a balance and say, okay, right now, I do need to focus on what is happening in my internal world um, and, and sit and focus on that. And there are times where I can go outwards into a social media spaces, for example, but then I'm able to see that, okay, fine, this is my, this is my boundary now, and this is my barrier, and I need to kind of bring myself in. So I think this is something that I personally learned, and I'm hoping that um, any of the listeners are also able to just kind of see in terms of social media as well, um, because social media does have its pluses, but it also has its minuses. Amina, thank you so much. Thank you for this fascinating conversation. It's been really interesting and so many insights that you've offered that have challenged me and also just deeply resonated with me. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and, and your devotion to mental health with us. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. I can't stress enough the importance of managing mental health. And I know that, you know, if we look at our systems in society, mental health isn't always a priority. If we look at our public health systems, um, accessing, you know, therapy or therapists isn't always um, readily available, you know, but I think managing our mental health essentially does involve how do we understand ourselves? How do we make meaning of ourselves? You know, there are steps that we take to manage our mental health um, and part of it is, for example, you know, what are our beliefs about ourselves and what are our beliefs about others? There are, you know, narratives and traditions that, you know, silence certain voices, you know, and what are our perceptions of those, those things? My final contribution is just to say that if you do have access to mental health services, please do access them. Um, there are some free services, there are some online services, and they might not be ideal, but at least you're gifting yourself with something, you know, um, to be able to engage with your mental health. And also, especially for looking at trauma and, and the difficulties of processing trauma, you know, if you can access mental health support for that, um, please absolutely do, because the unfortunate thing about unprocessed trauma is it continues to filter in, into our lives and it shifts us um, significantly. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that then the people in your life don't, may not necessarily have access to the healthier, better version of you that they might have access to if we are able to process that trauma in whichever way possible. You've been listening to Indaba Down South. For more information and links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit our website indabadownsouth.org.za or follow us on Instagram and Twitter for updates at Indaba Down South. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever podcasts are available. Thanks for joining us today. Here's to a sustainable, regenerative and thriving South Africa.